uh, this morning is going to be a message called Deadly Thoughts, Avoiding Pollution. This is our topic this morning. Uh, some of you may be familiar with some of this. I believe, though, that it is timely. Matt and I have had a chance over the last couple of days to really pray through this. We believe that this is the word that God is bringing to you today. And so we ask you to treat it as such. Uh, Matt, go ahead and move forward. Uh, this is a place in Israel. Uh, by the way, I guess I should have started our, our, our recording. It is uh, June 26th. It's Sunday morning. Our message this morning is Deadly Thoughts. This picture that is on the screen here is of Beit Shin in Israel. This is one of the most well-preserved cities in the ancient world. In your New Testament, uh, especially King James translation, by the way, I want all of you to know that my Bible that got stolen, this is not God telling me to buy a King James. I'm ready for that. I understand that that may be coming from some of you. I was tempted to read from the message this morning, but I just couldn't do it. <laughs> so anyway, in Beit Shin, this is uh, the center of the street. What is interesting about that is this is where we get the word cardiology. The main drag in any street is called a cardo uh, or cardia in, in Greek. And the way that you would say that in Hebrew is lead. But you can obviously see the Greek roots in the word cardiology. It's the very heart of something. It's the center of something. What was up on that hill is called the uh, Decapolis. And uh, the Decapolis Jesus spoke about. He also spoke about Stephopolis in the scriptures. You may recognize those names. That picture was taken there. So as we move forward, uh, the first two occurrences of this word in the Bible, uh, of heart or lead, Greek cardia, Hebrew lead, the Lord saw how great, this is Genesis 6, 5 through 6, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. This does not mean that the organ that is beating in his chest suddenly sprouted a mind. This means that in the center of who the human being was, in the very core of his personality, the center of his city, if you will, there was evil present there, and it never left. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain. The Lord our God is spirit. It's not possible for Him to have the organ beating in His chest that you call a heart. And this is just like when somebody says, I gave my heart to Susie in the second grade and she broke it. Right? This is speaking in the very same way. The very center of who God is, the essence of who He is, was filled with an emotion. That's an amazing thing. We don't often think of God that way. But the Bible describes Him as angry. It describes Him as loving. It describes Him as patient. It describes Him as merciful. These are all things that are in the center of who God is. And man's behavior caused pain in God's heart. One of the things that the Scripture teaches us, we've often put it on the wall in our churches. It's this James 1.13 through 15 Scripture. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This pyramid that is here describes something. Everything in our life 
begins with something. It begins with an urge somewhere down inside of us, a desire. If you want a home, that begins, that's a desire. It's a long time before you go and actually build it, or it's completed, or you sign paperwork on it. Everything begins with a desire. The desire has the ability, if it's not a good one, even if it is a good one, to compel you. To do what James calls dragging you, or enticing you. Have you never had a thought you couldn't get out of your mind? What, y'all don't speak this morning? Yeah. Yeah. I know none of you have seen the Leonardo DiCaprio movie Inception. <laughs> oh, a few of you have. Cass. <laughs> Can it be difficult to get a thought out of your mind? Yeah. These thoughts begin to have power, especially the longer they linger there. James's point is that when we have an evil thought uh, and are enticed by it, begin to let it dwell inside of us, it eventually bursts an action that is sin. This is why Jesus said to look at someone lustfully was the same as committing it. Obviously, it's not exactly the same as committing it, but it is the first step towards committing it. And in your heart, it's a done deal already. It's just a matter of opportunity. When this sin is birthed, then it, it has a chance to grow inside of you. Once you've done the thing once, it begins to callous your heart. It begins to make it a little bit harder so that it is easier to do the very next time. If it is allowed to grow there long enough, death will occur. This is, James, what we jokingly call the pyramid of death. What began with something as simple as a wrong desire ultimately ends in death because time allowed the desire to mature into something that was enticing, into something that was clearly wrong, into something that was done habitually, or repeatedly, and eventually death occurs. Anything that you see in any human being's life began in this very way because the Scripture says it. So when you see someone and you go, man, how did they get in that shape? Now you don't have to wonder. It began with an unchecked thought. So since it starts with a thought, we want to talk about where our thoughts and desires originate. Sin never actually comes from the outside of a man and just overpowers it. That's not the way that it works. It hangs out there as what is called the temptation, trying to entice you. And as you dwell in it, that's when this process starts. We need to know that if we stay in sin, we die. No doctrine will protect you from that. No pastor with a 60 mile an hour haircut and a silver suit can protect you from that. The process that the Bible describes period, is that sin that becomes habitual eventually produces your death. It kills your faith. It hardens your heart. It robs you of the ability to hear God. Everything then starts and finishes with what we think. Turn to Genesis 4. Well, actually, you won't have to. It's on the screen. Uh, this is kind of weird for me. I've never done this. We preach from a Bible usually. If you're a visitor, uh, forgive me. I promise what is on the screen is a Bible. I just don't have one. Apparently some crack addicts got it with Matthew's guitar and Freddie me on my computer today. Yeah. Maybe they get born again. You know? just, the funny thing, by the way, if you've not been in our church very long, this is not the first time this has happened. I spent 16 years with one, and it got stolen. I'm only two years with this one. Hello. I'm a meticulous note taker. Hours every day in my Bible. And, uh, 
I guess I might have to learn to write somewhere else. <laughs> I'm going to take notes in your Bible. <laughs> in Genesis 4, we really see an application of this that becomes important. Because Judah in the room, Judah, you come here. You're going to be a helper to me today. Is that okay? He's my son. He didn't have a choice. <laughs> Obedience is not optional when you're a child. If you're a child of God, obedience is not optional. The reason that obedience is optional for an adult is because we've become autonomous, independent of anyone else's rule. If you feel autonomous and adult before God, then He's not your God. You are. Right? Go ahead and have a seat there, Judah. Listen to this. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? The first frown in all of the Bible comes from a man named Cain. And it's the first thing that God seems to notice about him. Have you ever had one of those days where everybody's asking you, Hey man, what's wrong? What do you say? What do you say when they say, Hey, what's wrong? Nothing, I'm fine. You might need to consider that if more than one person's asked you, there's a sign written across your face that says something is wrong. Friends, it's called data denial. When everything in your life points to something and you're the only one that can't see it. You know, Christians ought to be the happiest people on the planet. We've, we've been delivered from death. But maybe that day we were entertaining a thought and somebody was trying to help us get free from it before it killed us. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to a field. And while, there, while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. I want you to see on this next slide, Matthew, you're going to have to stay with me, buddy. On this next slide, where this works, something that started as simple as being very angry had grown in him to desire. You know, he didn't leave God's presence that moment and go kill his brother. He left very angry and desire began to dwell inside of him. He had a chance to throw it down there, but he didn't. He decided, he premeditated to commit a sin. I told you that sin always results in death. In this case, Cain's sin didn't result in Cain's death. But it did result in Abel's death. There are times that you may see no consequence for the sin that you have committed. The thing that you harbored in your heart. But I promise there is a consequence for someone, somewhere. Maybe you're contributing to an industry that enslaves people. Maybe in some way, down the line, the product is always death. The devil will lie to you. He will tell you that the momentary pleasures of eating of the tree, of uh, knowledge of good and evil, whatever it may be, are worth it. And that no bad will come of it. No harm. I'm telling you that the Word of God is truth. And there is no such thing as no consequence. How many of you have uh, experienced sugar substitutes like me? Right? Mm -hmm, yeah. yeah. And, and we, we jump on the new bandwagon. Right? 
maybe it's uh, uh, sweet and low or equal or I remember when NutraSweet came out. I mean, what an amazing thing. In our day now, it, it's uh, what's the little yellow one? Splenda. Splenda. See, y'all can't speak. I praise God for that. It's Splenda. And, oh, I don't know, 10 years after they come out, what starts happening always? Oh, there's problems. There is nothing in this life that does not have a cost to it. The Bible tells us clearly what the cost of sin is. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel here. This is a story that Brother uh, uh, Zeke preached about a little bit. I want to show you something as we do this. Judah, since you're going to be my helper, what would you say Cain killed Abel for? So maybe he was a little envious? Would you say that? What color is most associated with envy? Green. Green. Put some green water in that jar. I want you all to watch this. Put one drop at first, son. It didn't just stay in one place, did it? What's it doing right now? It's spreading. Uh, somebody that's smarter than me will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's going to gravitate towards a position of equilibrium. Equally affecting every part of the substance has been injected to. This is what sin does. It never stops in one place. Once it's inside a person, it grows. It grows and it reaches every corner of their lives. In this case, envy started as a thought, but it began to permeate the entire thing. And what is it when you're laying in bed at night and, and you can't get a thought out of your head and you kind of roll over it? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It keeps coming back up and you cast it down maybe, but it keeps coming back up. Isn't that a little bit like stirring? A little bit like agitating? It's the devil trying to get this to permeate faster. Think about that. He's stirring it. He's trying to make sure that his demonic mixture is starting to affect everything. Did you see that as we did that though, it became less obvious what it actually is? Now what was once dark green is light green, but it's in every place. This is how sin always is. At first it feels bad. It feels wrong and I should stay away from it. But as it's agitating in your heart and growing, everything becomes a little less clear. Like, oh, well, maybe it's, it's not so bad, you know? Everybody's doing it. Hmm? Are you beginning to get that visual? Okay, in 1 Samuel, Judy, you may see. In 1 Samuel, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head. No, no, have a seat on the stage, son. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? To give you context here, what's happening is Saul is out looking for something that his father lost. And a prophet named Samuel, who is sent from God to anoint him as king, begins to tell him miraculous things that are going to happen in his life. This is what's happening. Verse 3. Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. 
That is a pretty specific prophecy, isn't it? If you've ever been in a crazy charismatic service like ours and gotten a prophecy that said something like, you know, I see that you will grow old. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry that that kind of stuff happens. Or you're newlywed, right? Mm. One day in your future, the Lord says you'll have children. Well, thanks, Nostradamus. I appreciate that. <laughs> when men of God are moved by the Spirit of God, in some way this becomes unique to you. They do not move in generalities that can be applied anywhere. That really is Nostradamus' view. They're not looking to give the impression that they know things that they don't. This man has had God reveal to him very specific daily details. What would be the purpose of that? So that the hearer, when they happen, could be encouraged in his faith that he was in the right place. Come on, isn't it an encouraging thing to do if the Lord tells you something that is specific and when it happens you really can't deny it? Yes. See, you had something like that happen. Yeah. The details are not important, but he had something like that happen. It's begun steering his life in different ways. Cody's had things like that happen. Matthew has, Steve has. As you walk around the room, these things help to encourage the body. That's why the gifts must be there, but hear me, crazy charismatics. They really must be the gifts. They simply can't be your own thoughts. It's not okay for us to monopolize uh, God's time like that. Then you'll go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. We got all the way down to the goats and the skin of wine. Now verse 4. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread which you will accept from them. Verse 5. After that you will go to Gibeah of God where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. It's almost as if Samuel saw a movie about the next day. I mean, I one time saw a man in the 50s not only prophesy to people what their illness was, but in one case the address that she lived at. This is before the guys with the earpieces and uh, Chevy Chase movies. He prophesied the address that she God knows where you live. You know, he told the Senate Sheriff when he marched on the walls of Jerusalem, he said, I know where you stay. You know where Senate Sheriff was struck dead? In the temple to his God. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. My goodness, Saul the king changed into a different person. Once these signs were fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. You must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, what's that phrase say, church? God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. If King Saul had a new heart, why on earth did he end up in such a bad place? I mean, how many of you realize that Saul had what New Testament Christians would call a born-again experience? He saw the miraculous. He heard a representative of God. He put his trust in what that man said. And then it happened according to what he said. 
and his life took a new direction and there was an inward change that matched the outward reality. Wouldn't you call that a born-again experience? Yeah. Amen. So what happens to him that puts him in such a bad place? Why does the Bible speak so negatively? All the situations that we encounter in our life, every one of them uh, are a test. They're a test for us to see what is inside of our heart. Deuteronomy 8 says that God caused His people to hunger so that He could feed them in order to know what was in their heart. In other words, the King of the universe puts you into positions to find out what is rolling around in your heart. Just like that water. If you just walked up to it for the first time, would you not right now be thinking, is that water pure? Is it clean? Or is it green? I can't tell. Is that the reflection of the glass? Or is there something in there? This is what happens anytime we meet people and they say, hey, brother, sister, I'm a Christian. I see something there that doesn't look right. But I don't know if it doesn't look right because of the container that it's in or the light of the environment that's around us or is what I'm seeing what I think it is. Can you relate to that, church? Yes. Amen. Good. Saul gets his first test. This is one that I thought Zeke did an excellent job preaching about. Several of us have mentioned it. Michael mentioned it in his message. So I don't want to read all of this, but I want—I do want to show you as we begin this that his very first test, uh, we see fear beginning to quake inside of him. Uh, pick up with Saul remained in Gilgal, and all of the troops were with him, were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. It is true that the Scripture said wait seven days. Jacob, thank you for pointing that out. He called me the other day when we talked about this. God has the right to tell you wait seven days. You go, okay, it's the morning of the seventh day. We're done, God. I did what you told me to do. The problem is the seventh day was not over. The man had ruled God out before the day was out. Wow, what do our days start like? Do we start full of faith? Everything's going to be okay. But as we see things, fear begins to permeate our life and we have reasoned God out of our situation. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering just as he finished making the offering. Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. It's an amazing thing. God said, wait there because I'm going to show you what to do. He both presumed the time and the action. Friends, if we decide for ourselves the actions we're going to take and the time in which we're going to take them, forget Lord being Lord of all of your life. Is He really Lord of any of our lives at that point? If you decide what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, what part of your life is left in His control. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought... I want you to pay careful attention to what happens next. We are not allowed to think things that are contrary to what God tells us. 
when you get those thoughts, we're supposed to do something with them. What did Samuel tell Saul to do? I want you to go there and wait. I want you to wait seven days and I will show you what to do. Was there a disclaimer that said, unless it's difficult, unless the circumstances are difficult, unless you feel pressure, none of those were there. What Saul had the right to do was mull over Samuel's words. He had the right to stand and think about those words, to repeat them to himself, to pray, to ask God to give him strength to do what Samuel said. What he did not have the right to do was discard them. But look, let's give Saul a break. He'd been given no confirmation that what the things that Samuel said were true. Or had he? You tell me, had he? Yes. Oh, you mean the details of the next few days of his life were prophesied about down to the number of goats and skins of wine? No. They were. They were. They were prophesied about. He was told, you're going to go to this place, you're going to get a skin of wine, you're going to see these three men, this is what they're going to be doing, this is what they're going to be carrying. Think about this. I realize that there are things it's hard for you to trust God in. I realize that. Jesus asked of us things that are difficult. But what reasons has He given you to doubt them? In this one thing it may be difficult, but can you look in the rearview mirror and see how many things He has spoken that are proven? to be absolutely correct. See, this was a moment where Saul could look backwards and he could go, I don't get it. I don't know why Samuel's not here yet because it's the seventh day. But every other thing he has ever told me proved to be true. Saints, isn't this our position? Isn't this our position 100% of the time? You may not like the position you're in in life right now, but how many other times has God already delivered you? His actions warrant our obedience. I thought, now the Philistines have come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. He had a thought that went unchecked. And not dealing properly with this thought began to drag him somewhere. Somewhere God had not said to go. Is it an evil thing to offer a burnt offering? You wouldn't think so. Except it's not what God told him to do. And when we're out of God's will, that is the definition of evil, no matter how well intended. Wow. His thought began to compel him to act a certain way. Look at Samuel's response. You acted foolishly. Samuel said, You have not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. If you had... He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. If he started with a good heart, what happened? I want you to pay careful attention to this because you're not any different and neither am I. He began to have an unhealthy thought. Maybe the Lord's word for me wasn't right or doesn't apply, or I've interpreted it incorrectly. Or what others say about this word is, the question is not what does Eric think about a word. The question is not what does Matthew think about a word. The question is what did God say to you, and are you being obedient to it? See, all too often Americans, we just shop for the word that we like the best. 
if this preacher presents it well, has a nice facility and a beautiful children's church, then let's go there. That's the word for me. The best question is, what is God saying to you? And have you been obedient to it? Because God clearly spoke to Saul. He showed him the events of his life to prove it. He anointed him king to, to bless him. He changed his heart so that he would be like God. But something happened. An unhealthy thought got in. It compelled him. I thought, so I felt. Felt compelled to sin. This begins to happen in ruins a heart. It permeates everything. Wouldn't you like to think that a mighty king was conquered by something other than a thought? Or his own fear? But it wasn't. A demon didn't manifest out of hell. Some big bully didn't hold him down, twist his arm. He did this to himself. And if we're honest, I know I've done it to myself. We usually use other words for it. I sat and I reasoned it out. That didn't, didn't seem like the best choice for me. Now, do you really have the right to do that? We're supposed to do what our Lord says. We're supposed to run when He says run. Jump when He says jump. We don't have the right to decide whether or not His will is wise for us. One of remind you about this James thing. It began with fear. The troops were quaking with fear. They were hiding. This began to move. The circumstances began to move Saul's heart. It produced a desire. I'm scared. I need to do something. I need to act. I know what I'll do. If Samuel were here, he would probably offer a burnt offering. So I, I think I'll do that. But he did the wrong thing at the wrong time. That is sin. At another time, by the way, a burnt offering might not have been sin. At another time, acting might not have been sin. It was sin because God said, don't. Friends, put that into perspective. You look at one Christian and say, how could they? Well, there are some things that are indisputable in sin. There's no way around it. But there are some that are sin for one at a time and not another. How could that be? Well, is a burnt offering sin? It is if God didn't want you to do it. Are you hearing me, church? Yes. See, this is not as simple as simply getting a list of rules. This is the other thing Americans are fond of. Not only do we want the word that we want, let us go shop from church to church and find the list of rules that fits us the best. You know, the one that fits in with our lifestyle the best. The one that makes us feel good about ourselves. Some people like to punish themselves. That's That makes them feel good about themselves. They've done something for God. Others want to get as far away from any restriction as they can. And that makes them feel like they've done something for God. But this right action at the wrong time was sin. And it began with a thought. His circumstances compelled him. Sin always ends in death. Saul had another test. This came from Samuel 15. And this one has actually been read in the last several services. Do you all remember that Brother uh, Zeke preached about Agag was supposed to be destroyed. His sheep were supposed to be destroyed. Everything that belonged to the Amalekites was supposed to be destroyed. He said, don't spare any of them. But in verse 7 on the next slide, when Saul was given that choice, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. He spared the army and the best of the cattle and sheep. Why did he do it? How did he do it? He did it because he had developed a habit. When I look around me and I see the circumstances, I have the right to choose. 
what is best. God's words have become a guideline for me, not an ultimatum, not a command. If I think best, I can let that thought compel me to do something and it'll be okay. Friends, I'm a pastor, so I see this every day. I see it every day, and we ask the same question over and over. What does God's word say? Well, I, I, but but see, the thing is, and what follows that that statement, that little stammer, is all the reasons that God's word don't apply to your situation. Come on now, look back. The most painful things in your life did they come from doing God's word or from reasoning out God's word and doing what you want to reason out? The strangest thing about this is you can actually get to the place. Look at 13. You can get to the place when Samuel reached him, Saul said, I bless you, or the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. This is what deception is. It's when you are clearly doing the wrong thing. You are clearly out of God's will. And anybody who looked at it objectively would know that. But you can't see it. Sin has deceived you. And why did it deceive you? Because it began as a thought rolling around in your heart. It stayed there long enough to entice you towards action. And now to admit that it was sin would be that, that you did something wrong and you can't do that. So you feel perfectly justified in it. And all the while, it is growing in us. The end of that is always death, friends. Always death. I want to tell you the truth. It would have been best if the moment he had a thought, somebody slapped him right in the face. Yeah. But we wouldn't normally call that love, would we? I mean, love is being distant, merciful, aloof. <laughs> I know those words shouldn't go together, but that's how I would best describe most people's relationship with their pastor. They would define love and mercy as far enough away that what I do doesn't matter to me. I'll never forget sitting in this very building and someone looked right at me and said, my personal life is completely different than my church life. Didn't think a thing about it. And moved right on to another church. Is that horrifying to you? It should be. It should be. This is the environment that is all around us. But it cannot be us. This man disobeyed the Lord's instructions, but thought that he did well. He was told to go out and completely destroy the people, and he didn't do it. Let's move forward a couple slides, man, and let's say, why did Saul fail this test? Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command in your instruction. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. Do you see how what began in the 13th chapter by the 15th chapter had become a pattern in his life? What is clear is that Saul was not a horrible, wicked human being by the standards that we have. In fact, each of the mistakes that he made, you could make a reasonable argument were good things to do. Yeah, could you? Well, sacrifice needed to be made. There was nobody there to do it. So I did it. The people were scared and didn't know what to do, so I had to take an action. It was, it was for them, not for me. Well, it'd be a shame to waste Agag. It'd be a shame to waste the best of everything here. We'll use it for the Lord. <laughs> Except this is not what the Lord has said. And that should be what is most important in our lives, shouldn't it? A thought began to compel him to break the Lord's commands. I was afraid. What color best represents fear in someone's life? Yellow. Yellow, why? 
<laughs> yellow belly, yellow streak down your back. Dude, put a couple drops of yellow in there. I'll say a couple because now on two occasions, fear has compelled him to do something other than what God told him to do. Watch that yellow hit the water. It will not stay where it first hit. It's not confined. It can't be contained. It's going to spread. Due to stir itself. Now, this is multiple occurrences of fear that is staying there. And it's being agitated by the enemy. You really did right. I don't know why everybody doesn't understand. If they understood you in your situation, then they would know how right you were in what you did. Any of those thoughts sound familiar to you? Yes. Yeah. Who are they to judge me? They don't know what's in my heart. The question is, do you know what is in your heart? Maybe it's just a yellow base. Who can really tell, right? Gente de color. We're all people of color. What colors define in your life? It started with green, envy. We've moved on to fear. Look at this. Unbridled thoughts lead to sin and death. 2 Corinthians 10, 5-6, Paul made the statement after speaking about weapons of righteousness. He said, and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. This means when you have a thought that says something needs to be done, your action that you take is to take that thought and make it obedient to your knowledge of Jesus. Lord, what do you desire? I will not move from this spot. I will not do a single thing in my own strength. I want what you desire. When that happens, you have the power to cast down sin. This bad thought moved into a bad desire. It became an enticing evil in his life. Sin was birthed. And then came death and defeat. He lost the kingdom of God over this. Friends, how important is it to identify wrong thinking? Well, let me ask you. How do you identify a wrong thought? Let's start there. Come on, some bold person. By the Word of God. Is it in line with the Word? Well, Lindsay has got that one down pat. If you need to identify a thought that is wrong, like is it in line with the Word? Come on, you're all very reasonable people. What do you have to know? The Word. The word. Do you think you're getting enough Word an hour, two hours a week to know that? Let me ask you a question without a show of hands. How many of you have been saved ten years? You think about this. And there are books of the Bible you have not completed. Yeah, see... If you had a Harry Potter novel, or 700-page Aragon, or maybe The Seven Secrets to Success, or maybe just a book on being a champion, it probably didn't take you 10 years to read it, did it? But the thing that was most essential to living right, most essential to avoiding death, we have no problem in procrastinating. Why is that? Is it because we would like to leave our knowledge a little bit vague, a little bit ambiguous, so we can say, I did do what the Lord told me? Friends, ignorance is not bliss, it's death. It's death. We can point to preachers. I mean, we can say they never told me. But the Gideons put a copy of the book in every hotel room you've ever stayed in. We live in a nation that is so saturated with Bibles that we don't even treat them as precious. We'll even steal it out of somebody's car. <laughs> Look, 
Shechem. This is an, uh, uh, another opportunity to examine the nature of the human heart. And I hope you, you, uh, you just tell me, are you getting something out of this? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you want to move forward? Yeah. Because yeah. what we could do is we could put our fingers in our ears. We could stomp our feet. And we could go look in the mirror and tell ourselves, we're good people and we've got it together. You could put a bumper sticker on your car that says, God is love. And you just decide that that's all you've ever known about Him. And you'll feel pretty darn good about yourself. He loves us enough to whip us. He loves us enough to correct us. He loves us enough to help us identify wrong thoughts by giving us a Bible. Men who preach it. Friends who can see things in our lives that we don't see. We stirred that water enough that we don't even see it when we look down. And everybody else is going, dude, you're looking kind of yellow. You know, I, you got hepatitis or something. You're kind of green around the gills, man. Something's wrong. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine to distance yourself from people who see you clearly. Don't go hang out with this one anymore. Don't they? You know, I just don't like the way I feel when I'm around them. Genesis 34. Now Dina, or Dinah if you prefer, the daughter of Leah had, bo had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob. And he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Because this is the way that every courtship should begin, right? I mean, I, I don't know how it worked in y'all's lives. My, my wife preferred a, a greeting card, not an assault. His heart was drawn to her. He violated her. Can those two things go into the same sentence? They can if you don't really know what's in your heart. They can if you don't understand that just because it's in your heart doesn't make it right. How many times have you been told, follow your heart and it'll work out? It'd be good to learn the Word of God. My favorite is when people tell me, I know the Word of God, it's in my heart. But they don't. They don't know the Word of God. And what's coming out of their mouths is not the Word of God. Say, oh, what's the Bible say about your heart? Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, listen to this. Let's make sure that this makes it past all barriers and right down into our mind, heart, and spirit. We need to know this. You were born of a diseased stock. You were born to a corrupted race. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. To reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. If this sentence in the Bible about Shechem, the son of Hamor, didn't prove anything else, it should prove that a heart is easily deceived. What is not and what is unchangeable does not change like shifting shadows is our God and His will expressed in His Word. Had this man been in love with Yahweh God and had he been reading the Word, right? Of course, it didn't exist in that sense, but you understand what I'm saying. There would have been something as simple as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? Does anybody recognize that? Oh yeah. Hillel said it. Of course Jesus said it after Hillel. Can you go violate somebody and say, yes, this is what I've always wanted? Then it wouldn't be a violation. You know? This man transgressed God's most basic commands. <laughs> He transgressed the heart of all of the Scripture 
And his justification for it? Well, his heart was drawn to her. He wanted her as his wife. Simeon and Levi, I mean, these are different scenarios. I, before you read what's on that page, you can forgive Shechem. Maybe you can't forgive Shechem. I guess it depends on where your heart is right now. Let me say this. It's easier for me to excuse someone who does not have any knowledge of God's Word when they sin. It's kind of like my dog barking. It's just what he does, you know. He also drags his tail on the ground and some other really unwholesome things. Why? He's a dog. Dogs bark, birds fly, sinners sin. But when the people of God have unwholesome thoughts, harbor them, and begin to act in worldly ways, this is an even greater thing. Look at this, Simeon and Levi. Genesis 34, 7. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury. That doesn't say they were angry. doesn't say very angry. Fury. Now let me ask you, is fury something that is God or is okay to have? Be careful how you answer this. There are certain things that should make you furious. The violation of your sister? Yeah, that should make you furious. It makes God furious. The Bible describes Him as smoke rising uh, from His nostrils over things like this. Of course, the Psalms, the fourth one, also the book of Ephesians, tells us in our anger or fury, do not sin. So is it enough to know a part of the Word? No. No, we have to know all of the Word. Um, let me ask you something. When Eve messed up, when, when she sinned, was it because she didn't know anything that God said? No, she, she knew what He said. But when something else was challenged, did He really say? She began to add lip. She added things to what God told her. She began to expand. God never told her not to touch the fruit, not to even look at it. He said, don't eat it. You know, don't do that. She ad-libbed and she added to it. What this shows us, saints, is that we don't have the right to work the Word like a lawyer would. We don't have the right to uh, play defense attorney at our own trials. We cannot do these things. We simply need to take an honest assessment of our lives as compared with the Word and see whether or not our water is dirty. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Judah, would you... Uh, would you say that, well, what color would you say rectum shows anger more than any other? Why? Uh, have you ever seen such a thing? Where would you have ever been exposed to such a thing? There you go, man. You ever heard that man's got his blood up? You know, what this means is that your heart is so filled with something that it is working overtime and that is now filling your whole body, your whole life. Verse 13 says that they went on to speak deceitfully to Shechem and Hamor. Shechem's daddy came and stepped in and said, Hey, look, uh, we realized this was not good, but I'll pay any price that you want. We'll intermingle with your people. We, we can become like one nation. You tell us what to do and we'll do it. My son would like to treat her as a wife. Now, my answer would have been no. Uh, that, that's just where I was raised. That, that would have been no. Abraham seemed to be conciliatory in, in this regard. The problem is, 
his sons said, oh yeah, we'll honor Abraham's decision. We, let's do this. We have this right that you guys need to know about. Now it's going to cost you a little something. Y'all have to be circumcised. Every man in the village needs to be circumcised. Now remember, it was one man that sinned, but remember, sin affects everybody. So all of the men agreed to be circumcised so that they can live in peace. Look at the 25th verse. Three days later, while all of them were there and still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword. Now, I'm not justifying it, but you might understand that, right? The boy and his father who tried to justify it, you might understand that. In fact, in a judicial system, that would be just. Sin never, never stops where it starts. Though. You might could have justified, although it was not God's will and it would be sin, you might could have justified killing a more check. But let me ask you about this next part. Killing every male. Every male there who had been compliant with a request who didn't know what happened. Could that be called anything other than murder? Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted. Looted the city. The princes of the universe, the sons of God, are out stealing like common criminals. The sons of Jacob came upon, uh, let's see, 28. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and every, everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth. Hear this next one. And all their women and children taking as plunder everything in the houses. Under what conceivable standard could that be okay? But I want you to get this. They felt perfectly justified in what they did. Are there situations in which God said, I want you to go in, I want you to raise that city to the ground? Everything in it dies. Man, woman, child, animal? Yeah, there actually are. Very specific reasons for it, but there are actually those. Are there situations in which God was pleased that one man killed another? Yeah. Study about Hophni and Phineas. I, I can show you lots of things like that. But these men took actions that God did not request at a time He did not tell them to because it seemed best to them. Where did that action start? With a thought that they had been wrong. And really, was it them? If anybody had anything to say about this, wouldn't it have been Dina? There's no mention of her feelings. No mention of her thoughts. Did, did you know where she was when they came and got her? Jeremiah 17, 5 says it this way. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. When we decide that we know what is right, that is a turning away from the Lord. Any way you look at it, when we don't wait for God to fix a situation, we go out to right it. 
That is turning away from the Lord and is called cursed. Look at verse 5 of, this is Genesis uh, 46, I believe. If it's not 46, it's 49. Somebody who loves me, look that up for me. Simeon and Levi are brothers. It's 49. I know now that it is 49. 49.5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they please. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Among the uh, tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob, they're receiving blessings. This was Simeon and Levi's blessing. Their anger and their unchecked fury was a curse. And what had to be done? They had to be dispersed. Their influence would be too great if they were allowed to dwell together. So God wanted to separate them because they had become the salt that was supposed to be the salt of the earth on the Lord's behalf. Suddenly it lost its saltiness and was working for the enemy. The people of God should have known better. In Proverbs 4, we find this very important proverb. You need to look at the screen. Look at the yucky water. Above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Each one of these things seemed almost innocent in the beginning. Man, they hurt my daughter. They hurt my sister. Something should be done. But that thought began to roll around until it enticed them towards something that is unfitting for God's people. And sin was birthed. And then sin grew. It didn't stop with just killing Shechem. They actually sinned against an entire town, men, women, and children. They became guilty in a way of the very same thing they were trying to punish, didn't they? Sin grows until it gives birth to death. Guys, I've been to places in the world and seen people drink from these scenarios. And it hurts your heart. There's a little girl in Mexico that I saw drinking out of a ditch like this in 2007. Like that middle picture. Had tires and all kinds of things. And it's so brief. I wanted to take her wrapper in my arms and say, sweetie, you should never, never, you're a daughter of the most high God, never should you have to drink this. I felt sorry for her. She got born again. Her whole life changed and slowly her circumstances were changing. So I came back to the United States and watched people drink from a different kind of ditch that is just as good. Just have to think that the father is saying, Son, daughter, you're better than this. I have better for you than what is backing up in your heart right now. And I'm the only pure boy. You are drinking from spiritual ditches. The way Jeremiah said it, you have rejected the wellspring of life, and you have dug your own cisterns, and they will not hold water. And then we wonder why our lives hurt. And are broken. Psalm 119 teaches us this. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I want to tell you that righteous living does not just happen. It does not just happen. 
you must be determined before you are in a situation that no matter what, you will not compromise the Word of God. As long as you only give it lip service, and it's really optional, the devil will cause you to choose the option every time. Because he knows where your weakness is. You set a radio and you expect it to stay where you set it. This one is set, oh, on about 800 a.m. If you came back and the radio decided that it was going to be on 500 a.m., you'd get a new radio. What must our God think when we pledge to Him every Sunday our heart is set upon His Word and by Tuesday we have forgotten that He has a Word? Our Bibles are still laying in the benches at church on the back dash of a pulpit. Colossians 3 is pretty darn important. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. The first thing that happens as your will is set upon uh, the Word of God, upon uh, the Spirit of God, the nature of Christ, is He begins to identify things in your life, contaminants, pollutants in your well that must go. You heard one today. It was a prophecy. Not intended to be given. Not planned. The Holy Spirit of God spoke and said, If you forgive, I will then rain upon your own. You know what that is? That is God searching the hearts in this building and going, I cannot bless you in the way that you're asking until you get rid of the contaminant that is blocking. And you know what? I have a feeling. feeling it didn't all get weeded out. Why? Why can you hear a word like that and then not act on it? Well, because it's been there a long time. And it's not as clear to you as it is everyone else. You've been stirring it until it looks like just part of who I am. God made me to be this way. I'm always unhappy. Friends, you should lose no time when God's good. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. What is an evil desire, friend? Any desire that is not the way God is directing you. We've seen a burnt offering become an evil desire. We have seen fighting the enemies of God become an evil desire. We have seen punishing a criminal act become an evil desire. Now, all of those things we could look at and go, oh, well, they're, they're questionable. But most of the evil desires that commonly plague us have no question at all. What is our excuse? But now you must rid yourself of all such as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Isn't it funny that all of those things start with a single thought? Everybody who has become a Bible student calls David something. They say, oh, David, a man after God's own heart. Am I right? Yes. yes. Now, I want to make sure you're not sleeping. 
a man after God's own heart. Why was he a man after God's own heart? Was it because there were no contaminants in there? No. no. Uh, oh, why is it that all of the women answered that question? <laughs> Some things hurt worse than others, don't they? David did a horrible thing. But you know what? He also, according to this, did everything that the Lord asked him to do. I'm not saying that one canceled out the other. I'm saying it's not possible to do what the Lord has asked you to do without getting rid of contaminants, having something called a pure heart created in you so that you can receive God's will and then go act upon it. The fact that he did what God told him to do lets you know that he dealt appropriately with contaminants. But did it cost him something? Humiliation over decades? The death of children more than one? The loss of his closest friends? His personal advisors went to work for enemies? Sin always takes you further than you wanted it to go. And hear this, it always ends in death. Even though David didn't die, his sin caused lots of people around him to die. And that's just starting with the woman's husband. David did defeat wrong thoughts. When he faced obstacles, think about Goliath. He could have had Saul's attitude. He could have been quaking with fear. But to David, an obstacle became an opportunity. No, if God brought me in the path of this giant, it must be because God wants to do something about the giant. He searches his heart in the heart of God and determines that while he can't kill the giant, God can if that's God's desire to do so. So David saw an obstacle as an opportunity, and it became something that God could overcome. This is the right way to deal with our thoughts. In Psalm 141, uh, verse 4 and 5, he said this. This is David speaking. Let not my heart be drawn to what is evil, to take part in wicked deeds with men who are evildoers. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. David had experienced the pain of having blackness poured into his heart. He experienced the pain of watching the results of sin and once having been there said, Lord, whatever it takes to keep me from compromising Your Word, please do it. No matter how hard He hits me, let something happen to keep me from choosing wrong. We don't have time to teach it today, but do you know where David went wrong? In the springtime when kings go off to war, David stayed home. He thought, I fought many years. I fought many battles. You know, I owe it to myself to kick back here on the roof for a while. That'd be fine if that's what God told him to do. But it apparently wasn't. A godly heart starts with the thoughts you allow into it. This is kind of a trash in, trash out principle, or good in and good out. When our thoughts are governed by the Word, it causes our faith to rise. We know what to trust in at that point. We begin to see obstacles as mere opportunities. Well, I was told to wait seven days and 
I don't know how that's going to happen, but what an opportunity to see God's power at work. We end up doing what God wanted because of that. And in that, we experience what Jesus calls an abundant life. This is a heart that is like God's, one that governs its thoughts. Pollution can be cleansed away. In John 4.14, these are famous words of Jesus, but rarely put into practice. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus has the ability to put something inside of you that will overwhelm other things that have been put inside of you. If the spring wells up and never stops welling up, we have an eternal source of cleansing inside of us. This Ephesians 5, it couldn't be any more important. This is the crux of our message today. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. This word, be filled with the Spirit, is in a certain tense in Greek. And it means to be continuously being filled. To never stop being filled with God's Spirit. The behaviors that he lists after this have to do with things that derive from being filled with God's Spirit. Come, come up here. Judy, you come over here. Can this water, this ugly, nasty water, you'll stand on either side here, can this water be made pure again? Yes. One says yes. What do the rest of you say? Yes. yes. Everyone says yes. You're an optimistic not, bunch. Not that one. That water will never be pure again. Not that one. It's contaminated. When David prayed and said, Create in me a clean heart, the word for create in Hebrew was bara. It means to make out of absolutely nothing. There is nothing here of value, Lord. What I need You to do is to put something into me brand new that has never been there before. Friends, the truth is that we can wreck things so badly that only being born again can fix it. Only being completely renewed can fix it. Do you remember John the Baptist said, I must decrease and He must increase. I want to show you what that looks like. Would you gentlemen both begin pouring in here slowly? This ugly, nasty water, if you get enough volume, you might have to help him. It looks very strong. Look at that. If you get enough volume of water going into this, It'll begin to overflow. And slowly, it begins to be less and less and less of the original painted product in there. And more and more and more of the Holy Spirit of God in it. Eventually, it won't look anything like the old life. It'll be something that is so completely new that it looks only like the living God. Y'all want them to stop now or keep going? Then why do we stop and not keep going? We sing more of you, more, 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 more of you, but why are we satisfied to stop when there's more to be had? 
Saints, it's almost as if we don't know how bad we need this. Come on, church. Did you hear the song? Fill me up, Lord. Well, I'm thirsty, Lord. I don't uh, want to be drunk. I want to be drunk in Your Holy Spirit. All of those kind of songs. Let me ask you, is that now new? Is it better than before? Even if you wanted to drink what was there before the contaminants, so to speak, is this not fresh? Every day we're to get a fresh anointing of God. It's not just to wash out the ugliness that's in your heart. It's because water is best when it is fresh. Water in the Bible has to do with intimacy. Husbands are told of their wives not to pour their water out into the streets. In other words, what is intimate between you and your wife leave between you and your wife, not the whole world. It was for you. How interesting that God chose water to symbolize His Holy Spirit so often. It is intimate. He is the gift to you. He has made you a participator in His divine nature if you choose to drink of Him daily. I want to tell you something, friends. You're going to drink from one cup or another. You will drink of His cup, having His nature poured into you through the Word, through your prayer life, through your interaction with Him. Or you will drink of a cup of judgment. And the judgment was always in your hand. It was always your choice. Our God sets before us life and death. He desires to do this for us. Everybody always wants me to put some DD7 in this and clean it up. It doesn't work that way. The only way it cleans up is if you pour more of Him in you than there is of you. We're going to close with this. It's Revelation 21, verse 6. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Before I move past that, a spring is not a spring if it is standing still. Jesus promised to put that spring inside. He poured it once from the top down and the rest of your life, it comes from the bottom up. So I want to ask you, are you fanning into flame when He is immersed in the presence of God? You do not have a need that the heavens come down to you or that you go up to the heavens. He is already willing to put His Spirit in anyone who believes The fact that it was poured there doesn't mean that you're listening to The Holy Spirit being led by the Spirit guarantees you to be a son of God. Simply having the Holy Spirit poured into your life does not guarantee forever that you're uh, walking as a child of God. Whoever you present yourself as a slave to obey, that person is your master. I'm assuming that we should make the Lord our master. He who believes the right doctrine no. He who attends the right church. No. He who does good deeds. No. He whose pastor has the most people. No. He who's the most comfortable, the no. best looking, the richest, the wealthiest. He who gave the most. He who entertains the best. Matt and I were joking on the way back. He said, brother, you don't have a guitar. I don't have a Bible. I don't have my computer. We don't have our study tools. 
what are we going to do? And we're kind of guessing. We're trying mm -hmm. to keep our spirit up. So I could juggle from the pulpit. That's what everybody else seems to be doing. <laughs> he who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, friends. There is no recovery from the second death. Now, I have given you everything that the Lord gave me to give you. What you do with this from here is up to you. There's no emotional altar cult today. There is no... Sister Bertha better than you, pounding out just as I am on the organ. There is only you, your thoughts, and the Word of God. And what you do with them will determine how the rest of your life goes. I'm going to pray for you. Y'all stand to your feet. Notice that some of the pastors that I have been hanging around in Latin America seem to act as if their position as a pastor carries special weight. The pastor's prayer is more important than people's prayer. Something that really rubs me in the wrong way. Say, I, as a man of God, bless you. I want to tell you right where we're praying from today. Equally corruptible, equally weak, equally damaged, but having experienced and tasted the mercy of God with a passion to see His will done that drives sin out of our lives. We're fellow servants through whom many of you came to believe. We can pray powerfully but what matters at the end of the day is not what we do. What matters at the end of the day is what we do. Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, I ask that your spirit who is hovering above these people, Lord, that you would begin to pour your will into their hearts and minds. Lord, I can feel your presence in this place. I can feel that you are pleased many of the people and encouraging others to take new steps. Lord, I'm asking that you would have mercy upon them. That you would give them the courage to do what their beating heart this moment says they must. Lord, we offer no booster seats in your name. No training wheels. Instead, we say that your spirit draws those saved, who want to be saved, who desire, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, I ask that your work would be done in these people this day. We commit them into your hands even as we place our own lives in your hands. We pray with David that a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. It is oil on my head and my head not refuse it. Our desire is to walk with you without wavering in our belief. Lord, help us. We are your children and desire to be led by your hand. In the name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen. 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 Say to